When the Tongan volcanic eruption took place mid-January, majority of the world seemed caught off guard at both the scale and impact of the underwater eruption. And so, in our week-long special interview series, we want to explore the nature of the underwater volcanic eruption and, of course, its ripple effects. On our third edition today, we seek some answers on its environmental impact. Joining us via Zoom today is Professor of Volcanology at the University of Auckland, Shane Cronin. Good morning, Professor Cronin. Good morning. Lovely to speak to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I wanted to start out our discussions with the reports I've read on what's happened since the eruption in Tonga. It sent hundreds of thousands of uh, tons of sulfur dioxide into the atmosphere. Debris entered the stratosphere. We've seen images of that massive explosion. It's believed to be the biggest eruption in the world in three decades. And now I'm wondering, did the underwater volcano eruption have a ripple effect on global climate? That's a good question. And it's definitely the more that we learn about this eruption, the bigger it has become in in terms of the um, sheer size of the explosion, but also uh, the duration of the uh, of the event was longer than we anticipated. As for climate, um, the uh, the impact is probably going to be small, um, mainly because the amount of sulfur Mm. that's released by the volcano was relatively small uh, mm-hmm. compared to some other volcanoes. Mm-hmm. And, and much of the sulfur seems to have been washed out of the, of the plume or reacted with water within the plume uh, to form what we call sulfate. Uh, and then that will um, uh, kind of scrub the plume, if you like, of the, of the sulfur that causes some of the climate impact. Mm. Would maybe a higher level of sulfur detected had more bigger consequences on the climate? I'm not quite sure what sulfur does to a global climate change. Yeah, that's um, if there was more sulfur, then what we would expect is there's the sulfur combines with water, creates these small droplets we call aerosols. Mm. And the sunlight, as it comes in, it uh, is blocked by these aerosols and and reflects back. So if it's a very large eruption and lots of sulfur, then there is kind of like a cooling effect because Mm. the sulfur reflects Mm. the sun's energy back. Mm. So uh, you actually brought me to my next question, because one of the uh, estimations was uh, if the scale of the uh, volcanic eruption was big, and as you've mentioned, if there is more sulfur detected, then it would have had a cooling effect and that would have had a kind of a positive change as far as global warming goes. That's what I've gathered so far. But if we compare it to the cooling effect that took place of 1991 Mount uh, Pinatubo's volcanic eruption in the Philippines, you're saying that it's much smaller. Yes, currently it is much smaller in terms of the cooling effect. Mm. In terms of the explosion energy, um, similar if not bigger in in places. Mm. I understand that, you know, a lot of scientists are speaking estimations. Is that because it's difficult to make conclusive answers based on all the data you've corrected only so far? Yeah. So in terms of the atmospheric impact, um, I think we have a pretty good idea because of the satellite information helps us with that. In terms of some of the aspects of the volume and scale of this eruption, we're still in the dark because so much of it is actually below the waves and so out of view currently. Volcanic eruptions also create shock waves. Does this pose further hazards to humans? For example, we've seen reports of tsunamis. 
That's right. So um, shock waves or atmospheric pressure waves travelled around the world and uh, one uh, station, for example, measured shock waves travelling around the world four times, mm. uh, these pressure waves. And so they can change um, they can change all kinds of um, features of the Earth. So one of the, one of the waves, the air pressure waves that's travelling around the Earth uh, after this eruption um, had um, a kind of a period, we call it, or the length of the wave was about a 120 seconds long or longer. And that wave had so much energy that it actually coupled with the ground surface and caused seismographs to register the wave going over. So the air pressure wave influenced not only the ocean, but also the land. And I've heard from uh, colleagues in Switzerland who run uh, earthquake monitoring network and the, um, the pressure wave in Switzerland on the other side of the earth from the volcano uh, actually triggered uh, seismic alarms, 31 false alarms on their, on their system. So it's remarkable how uh, impactful these, these pressure waves can be. These pressure waves, it, it's a usual phenomenon of following volcanic eruptions, is it not? We see them in uh, small explosive eruptions. And so we've seen them in um, events that have been witnessed in Japan and in um, Indonesia, also in Vanuatu. Um, but the very big pressure waves that travel around the world, we see them mainly only with very explosive eruptions. So Krakatoa was, uh, was another one which involved a submarine um, and semi-emergent volcano. Mm -hmm. And so that was another one that produced such shockwaves. Really the best uh, examples are those that are uh, involving a lot of water in the eruption. Uh, I guess the question uh, for us here in Korea is uh, if such shockwaves are sent across the world next time there is a similar eruption, maybe from a different volcano, um, are we well prepared to address the ripple effects of an eruption of such scale? I think the the lucky thing for us in, in general uh, is that the Tongan eruption occurred a long way from inhabited islands. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, the, the consequences of such a scale of event would have been enormous had it been uh, close to inhabited islands or closer to inhabited islands or, or, or on, on a continent, uh, for example. So in this case, we were lucky that the distance helped us. But certainly for these scale of events in populated areas, um, the preparation, every preparation we could do would be, uh, you know, there would be so much impact on all manner of our of our lives. And so the you know, the pressure waves and all of these kinds of situations that happened with this particular eruption, mm -hmm. I think those effects are mainly um, ones that we are familiar with dealing with, the false alarms, mm -hmm. these kinds of implications. The coupling of the pressure waves to create tsunami are probably the most life-threatening aspects of, of those uh, events. Mm. But we do have a lot of, from what I understand, nuclear power plants on the, in the coastal areas, not just in Korea, but from many other countries. In the case of these tsunamis, as a ripple effect of an eruption, small or big, it just seems like from where I stand that we're not best prepared for the aftermath. I'm reminded back of what happened in Fukushima. Do you think the world is doing better to prepare ourselves for such occurrences? 
I think each time we have an event like this, we get a little bit better. Okay. Um, but it's pretty surprising the size of this eruption. Mm. Um, and it meant that we weren't as prepared for such an event. So, for example, tsunami warnings weren't issued in many countries mm. in relation to this eruption, simply because the tsunami models are not are not prepared to cope with um, such large volcanic-induced tsunami. Uh, and so that's one step that really needs to be uh, made in terms of improving those models. The other is ash fall. Mm. And so a large amount of ash fall was produced and the spread of the eruption column was very large and it's too too large and too explosive an eruption to for our normal models to cope with. So we need to improve our tsunami propagation models mm. and we need to improve our ash propagation models mm. to better prepare our societies for these kinds of impacts. So ash can affect your cooling water for your nuclear power stations. The tsunami can obviously affect many coastal areas. Mm. For, from at least based on the three interviews we've conducted this week, what I'm gathering is that enough attention needs to be kept on the monitoring and the further study. And it seems like a very extensive long-term study on the nature of these volcanoes. And from what I understand, there needs to be government subsidies and, and financial help to keep those studies going. Uh, that's what we're trying to do here, put an emphasis on an important field of study, it seems. But uh, from where you stand, uh, how can we better prepare for such natural disasters, realistically speaking, step by step? Yeah, that's uh, so you've you've hit, you hit the nail on the head with your comment in, in that it's the consistent um, funding and support of monitoring and awareness and so we do that well in, in well-developed countries. So, you know, inside mm. Korea, for example, very good monitoring and, um, and geophysical services. But outside Korea or outside um, most well-developed countries, um, you know, places like Tonga, uh, the, um, the infrastructure for monitoring is extremely poor. Mm. And, it's, and it's about not only funding for equipment, but also training and then ongoing kind of commitment to, to that. So if we were having, for example, in this situation, much better seismic uh, monitoring, uh, there would have been a lot more warning of this event and um, a lot more preparation. Mm. Thank you so much. Uh, this was such an insightful conversation. Uh, we hope to speak to you again soon. Oh, nice to speak to you as well. If you're listening to our program using the podcast service, just a reminder that we do go live Monday through Friday, 7 a.m. Korea Standard Time. So tune in and help us make the show more informative by giving us your input. See you bright and early on Good Morning Seoul.